Out of the fire, 20 years after the clergy sexual abuse scandal in the Archdiocese of Louisville, Shannon Age shares her story today on Spirit Inspire, starting right now. Broadcasting from the Cathedral of the Assumption in Louisville, Kentucky, this is Spirit Inspire. And now, here is your host. Welcome to another episode of Spirit Inspire, everyone. Today, I'm your host, John Soul, and joined with me is my co-host, Isaac Fox. Hello, everyone. And uh, Eric, of course, could not be with us today, so uh, please pray for him and his family. Um, today, we have a very special guest and uh, someone who I didn't even know existed until a few weeks ago, and it's been a, quite a miracle of grace, um, and I consider her a good friend. So. Uh, Shannon Age, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Thank so, you so much. Absolutely. So, Shannon, you have a very, very powerful story, and I know the Holy Spirit, we've we've asked to be with us, and uh, especially as we prepare for Pentecost, the time in the church where so much goodness and fruit comes forth, uh, we know that this time together will be that as well. We trust that. Absolutely. And so... You have a story to tell. I would love to hear, you know, some of the early days and, and uh, things that you've been through in life that has brought that sense of conversion and peace into your life. So, okay. um, Shannon, thank you. You're welcome. Um, many, many years ago when I was growing up, my mom and dad moved to a new house uh, in Oklahoma in 1964, because they had heard that directly across the street from our house, they were going to build a Catholic church. And they wanted their little girls, who at the time were four and six, to go to a Catholic school. And what better way, you know, they're going to be straight across the street. So they moved into this little house in May of 64. And within the next year or so, St. Luke's was being built and they were founding members of St. Luke's, and they just loved this little community that was growing. The cords to the electric that was used to build the rectory were hooked into our house. So from the very beginning, we had this huge connection with that Catholic community. Right. And um, mom and dad were just involved in every aspect of it. I can remember once they got the rectory built, we had masses in the basement of the rectory. And then I believe we had them at um, a school somewhere for a while. And then the building was there. And, uh, you know, mom and dad again, you know, daddy was a lector. And this was just after Vatican II had come about. So everything was new and different to them, not so much to me. It was the only thing I knew, right. but new and different to them. They were always talking about this thing called the Baltimore Catechism. <laughs> no clue what that meant, but uh, I knew it had to have been a book because it was a catechism. And they were trying to, to help mold this parish along with so many other couples and young families into this new Vatican II model of what a good Catholic parish should be. And so they were... That was just where we were all the time. If we weren't in school, Debbie and I, once we both were in school, we were at St. Luke's doing something, and Mom and Dad were there all the time. At the same time that all of this was going on, my dad worked for the Kentucky Air National Guard. He uh, 
was in plans and scheduling of all the maintenance of all the aircraft. And there was a chaplain that was at the Kentucky Air National Guard, and his name was Father Kevin Cole. Now, Father Kevin was very different for that time period. Most, and even today, most priests are assigned to a parish, and they live in the parish setting, and they work in the parish setting. Well, Father Kevin, his big thing was he was a professor of theology at a local Catholic university, and um, well thought of, chaplain at the guard. Um, The most amazing thing above that to my mom and dad was that he too had a very deep Irish heritage. My father's uh, father had come from Ireland in 1908. So, you know, they had this deep love of everything Irish Catholic. And so um, they started a friendship. And both Father Kevin and my father were alcoholics. So this was usually part of the whole setting was, you know, you always had your, your beers there with you. Right. Uh, well, then he started bringing Father Kevin home. And Father Kevin was just amazing because, you know, we were four and six. We're little kids and we're always doing goofy things and saying goofy things. But this priest loved us. He was not at all put off by anything that little kids do. He loved to have us sit on his lap. Uh, I'm sure you all know from even when you had your own kids when they were real little, you would bounce them on the foot and right, you know swing right. the foot up and down. That was a wonderful game. Um, he was always bringing us little toys and and taking us for ice cream, taking us here and taking us there. Um, and he just became part of our family. He became a part of this whole thing because at the same time, uh, my father introduced him to the pastor at St. Luke's and told him that because he didn't have his own parish, he could actually sub if needed. Mm. Um, so he was just all in. And uh, we thought this was such a blessing uh, to have someone in your faith so closely connected with the family and you know everything was just wonderful. And at the age of four, which I was, um, you don't have the the level of intelligence, I guess I would say. You don't understand what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong. You just know that if mommy and daddy tell you to do something or if somebody's okay, you trust them. There's no reason not to. They're your whole world. So... Um, that's what we were told. Father Kevin is a priest. He's a good man, and he would never do anything um, because priests don't do that. And so um, as this relationship kept growing, he started going on picnics with us at the local park, and we would do such fun things. He would literally roll down these big tall hills at this park. He would get on his side and row down the hills with us. It was it was so much fun, you know. Yeah. Uh, he would get on the uh, seesaw with us. I, I mean, he These would are swing normal, us. normal, healthy human normal, things. Normal, he- healthy things. Uh, and he was just always, always there. He went on weekend trips that we would take to the lake. He went on, he was there for every birthday for, he was just there. Um, and You know, Debbie and I thought that, Debbie being my sister, thought that was just a wonderful luxury that we had. We had this good priest. Um, 
then Father Kevin uh, started doing some things that, and please, the, the audience, you must realize that when I'm talking of, of this time, you can't see it in the lens of 2023 mm-hmm. because we know different things. Right. Uh, we know stranger danger. We know good touch, bad touch, all of these things that had never been heard of in 1964. So when I'm talking about these things, please remember, I'm talking of a different generation, actually two generations ago, um, that had different views on what was safe, what was not. And none of the abuse scandals had broken at the time, so Never. this was unexpected. Totally. Nobody would, would even have been on their guard. No, no one totally. would have totally. thought dreamed of it. that no. anything could happen. Because Absolutely priests not. had a certain <coughs> expectation, the church had a certain influence and in standing in society that's Absolutely. very different than today. Absolutely. So in 1964, just a few months after all of these dinners where he would come out, um, I can remember it in the evenings um, after we would go to bed. probably, I don't know if you all remember, there was these little Formica top tables that had metal all the way around them and the little metal chairs. That's the type of table my mom and dad had. So every time a a beer bottle was raised, my dad was Sterling, Father Kevin was Stroh's, you would hear them (laughs) clink on the table, you know? And you just knew that they were just out there talking and they usually were having discussions about theology um, or having discussions about stuff going on at the guard, which again, totally normal. But one night um, after dinner, Father Kevin asked if when the kids go to bed, would you mind if I said their prayers with them? Mom and dad were like, well, sure, Father, that would be great. You know, you can lead them in, in prayers. And so after we had our baths and we went to bed, Father came back in and led us in prayers. And, uh... Perfectly normal, perfectly normal. At the time, Debbie and I slept in one room together, uh, and, you know, he just said prayers with us. Yeah. And then a few weeks later, he, after dinner was over, he says, Daddy, how about while you're doing the dishes, I'll go ahead and give the kids their baths so that, you know, we can get them to bed and, and just have a little more time. And he, she was like, okay. Dad said, sure, I'll just go get us some more beers and I'll be waiting for you, Father. So he gave us our baths. Um, a four and a six-year-old. So probably just a few weeks, maybe a month after that, he again came to them and said, you know, I know you all never really get to enjoy a true evening out where you don't have to worry about the girls and you don't have to worry about getting up early the next morning. So if you want to stay out a little late, you can. He says, you know, I've got an apartment at Bellarmine. Why don't you just let me take the girls with me and we'll go out to eat. I'll take them to our favorite restaurant. Shannon loves that spaghetti. Um, We'll have dinner. We'll go back to to my apartment. Um, And then you can sleep in and those Two cuties won't bother you. And that was the beginning. That was the beginning. Um, when we, uh, he always took us to, it's a, a restaurant that is now gone in the Highlands. And uh, he always got ravioli. 
always got spaghetti and meatballs. I don't remember what Debbie got. Um, and that was just our thing. And then afterwards, we went back to the to to the building and there were a lot of other priests there in the room it was like a, a community room if you will and um, he introduced us and said that he was watching the the little cuties for the night and he needed to go now because he needed to get the kids up so that he could give them their baths and get them to bed and so we went into his apartment and I can remember uh, there was a wall that went down the center portion of it. And on one side, I can remember there was a metal desk and his, I guess they're called foot lockers, what the military carry all their mm. stuff in. Mm -hmm. And that was sitting there and there was a coffee table. I don't remember a couch or anything. Uh, Debbie reminded me later on that there had been like a hot plate in the room. So I guess if he wanted to warm something up, he could. And then on the other side of that wall was his bed, a closet in the bathroom. Um, and that was the beginning of it. Uh, you know, uh, Shannon, one of the things that occurs to me as you're beginning getting into your story and of course, the focus here, I think, is going to be on your story and the healing. The healing. But one of the things that does occur to me is now that we're more aware of these kind of things is the aspect of what would be called grooming does not relate only to the children, but to the parents yeah. as well. To and the whole family. I, I help teach uh, the high school religious ed classes at my parish. And so I had to go through the... Um, Safe environment. Safe environment. They were thinking, I couldn't think of the name, which is not a pleasant class to sit through. Yeah. And so some of that information was new to me, but that aspect was something that very much caught my attention at was the, the subtlety and the intelligence with which parents are groomed as well. Absolutely. And maybe we, if we have time today, we can circle back that a little bit because part of this, I would also like to be cautionary um, because other people may find themselves in similar situations. And I'm not talking just about the children, but the parents completely right. unwittingly because this person had come into your life and your parents' life in a perfect way to a seem totally like the benign ideal way. person, yes. right? Yes. One complete trust was not in a rush, took time with all of that. There's an entire process that goes along Absolutely. with this. <laughs> and yet, before we, also on the other hand, every nice person we don't want to be suspicious of either. So there are, fortunately, certain clues, certain cues of how this thing works. Um, so I guess I would kind of encourage people if they, they are worried about this or in situations where they're afraid this could happen, to look into that, maybe take lessons from your story here mm -hmm. as well, so that parents can be also on guard for raising their own children. Well, one it's of the important. main reasons I wanted to do this and also why I wrote a book, one of the main reasons was to show, number one, that healing is possible. Yes. But number two, that most pedophiles or sexual abusers do have a um, a certain thing, a certain way of doing things. And an they, MO yes, sorts, an MO, yeah. they learn what works best and they stand by it completely. Um, the difference in 
our case of Debbie and I is that because our families were so very entwined, so very linked, um, my dad was uh, in the military, as I said, and he and Father Kevin both were sent away for a while, for about a year and a half. And during those times, um, there were all these letters flying back and forth between my mom and dad and Father Kevin. And he was also sending Debbie and myself cards and letters, etc. So whereas most people can tell you what happened, I can show you the trail. Right. I can show you <coughs> how a, a, a pedophile, excuse me, operates, how he puts that hook in and gets the family yeah. and still can go, you know, be on the edges of, of what is right and wrong. But because of his position, whether it's a coach, whether it's uh, uh, any, any type of uh, profession that you have, if you're a pedophile or a sexual abuser, you can groom what you do Right. to get people to trust yes. you. So don't think that this is just a priest thing. Right. No, it, it, um, it definitely absolutely isn't. Absolutely right. not. He was just very good at what he did. Father Kevin was so good, and the people that I guess you would say controlled him um, had to have been aware of it for so long that he was moved not from parish to parish, but to six different states. Yeah. And that's another part of the story, too, yes. which I expect we'll get into. Uh, is and, the, and that was the, the way it was done this. back then, because, you, again, let's look through the eyes of back then. Uh, they thought it, of it more of a moral defect mm -hmm. than they thought of it a psychological problem. Right. OK. Mm -hmm. And so they thought if they could just get them to see the immorality of what they were doing, they would, they stop. would stop. So I guess, w would you say it's more like if you have a priest who's taken a vow of celibacy, and he breaks that vow at mm -hmm. some point with an, an adult, right? Um, it would be kind of like the slap on the wrist. You know, that was wrong. That was immoral. You broke your vow, you know, say you're sorry and start over again sort of thing. As opposed to saying this is a deep-rooted psychological problem. Yes. And, yeah. But at some point during this time, back in 19, I think it was 1963, which was the year before this all happened to Debbie and me, the um, president at the time of the university where he was at, um, a parent came to him in the parking lot there and said that this had happened with Father Kevin and their daughter. And that they wanted to make sure that he was taken care of, that he was removed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the president uh, said he would look into it. And he was deeply disturbed. Moments later, Father Kevin, who had been off somewhere watching this all happen, came to the president and said, whatever they told you, it's all true. It's, it's true. I did it. But I'm seeing my psychiatrist tomorrow. And so the president thought, it's been taken care of. I don't have to worry about anything. He realizes that it's wrong. Wow. He realizes that he needs help, and he's gotten his help in place. So he was really even using that as Absolutely. sort of a, a grooming of the president. In Absolutely. A sense. Absolutely. He That's made so him profound. feel safe that Kevin knew what was wrong. And Kevin. This speaks to the power, not just of position, because oftentimes it can be someone, like you said, a coach, or uh, I was reading Bishop Barron's letter to a suffering church, and he was speaking of that vast power difference, even like Hollywood producers compared to their actresses and, Absolutely. and that kind of struggle. But in this situation, the, the power is both 
over him lording it over the family and, and over you, but also the reality of the manipulative nature of how he did things. Absolutely. He could even use it to control the people who were above him. Yes, absolutely. And he was very good at it. He was a very good speaker. I can remember he sang beautifully. Um, he was a very good homilist. He was just good at everything he did. And nobody wanted to admit that something could go on. Um, and so this went on for six years. And we're not going to get into graphics. I don't think that that is necessary. Um, but it went on for six years. And during that time, um, my sister, years later, felt that she needed to tell me that she felt she was responsible for my abuse. Um, and we sat and cried. And I said, Deb, how can you be responsible? You were six years old. Don't let that weight hit you. But I was there with you, Shannon. I was there the whole time. Well, I was with her, too. Yeah. Um, even my parents didn't understand. So how was a six-year-old child yeah. who knew what was going on uh, supposed to protect her little sissy? So, and I think that goes very far in a lot of uh, families here in, in Louisville where an older sibling was abused by a priest and then found out years later that a younger one was. And they carry so much guilt, so much shame. It's an extra load. But you have to understand, people, they were all children. And there's no shame or guilt that should be ever put on them. It was no uh, fault, they were No, no fault they were doing what they were told to do. Right. So... Uh, the challenge we're facing here is this is not just your story, but this is the story of many Absolutely. who were involved in this. Mm -hmm. And with Father Kevin, but even other priests that, uh, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try to jump ahead of the story here, no, no, but no, it's, go right to me, the, the, the arc of this story is one of absolute suffering, death, but also resurrection and healing. And we're actually in those very days of resurrection and healing that we're starting to witness, but it's taken decades. Yes, yes. Decades. When this first came out in 2002 and uh, the first stories started coming out of Boston, and then they started coming here in Louisville, um, Debbie and I sat down for quite a while, and what do we do? Uh, we had both uh, been in therapy for over a decade at that point. I was at the time 42. Debbie was... 43, getting ready to turn 44. And um, she said, well, what are they going to ask for? And I said, I have no idea. And she said, I don't want money. And I said, I don't want money either. But what we need to find out is how many other people did he affect? Right. We know we can't be the only ones. Mom had given us little hints of people she thought perhaps something had happened to, but she had never really come right out and say it, said who she thought for sure. Um, so I called the archdiocese. Um, and at the time, again, we have such a great system now with a, a specialist that takes care, uh, Martine Siegel, who takes mm -hmm. care of victims, okay? Yeah. And we have all of these different things that have been implemented since 2002, thank God. 
Uh, but at the time, it was a, a deacon that was answering the phone. And he had no training in how to talk with people who were reporting. Mm. Um, again, no fault of his own. Right. Just the way it was back then. And when I asked him if Father Kevin had been reported, he said yes. And I th my first thought was Debbie must have be gone ahead and called herself. I said, was it my sister? And he said no. So right then I knew there had been others. There had been others. And he said very loudly, you do know he's dead, don't you? And I just caught my breath. And I said, yes, I know he's dead, um, but he'll n never be dead in my head. He'll always be there. And I said, so I want to report him. She, and he said, uh, well, he's not one of ours. You need to call his, his group that he was, you know, his, uh, he's not a diocesan priest. It's order priest. He was an order priest. priest. And I said, okay. So I got off the phone and I just, I just wept because he was just so, eh, he's not one of ours. Um, and as I came to find out in, in the, the next, the ensuing weeks and months of coming out with the story publicly for more than just my close friends and family to know, um, that this, that was very much the attitude. Oh, he's dead. Get over it. Just move on. Um, and so when Debbie and I joined the lawsuit, I had an ire after we signed the papers to go and tell our 12 and 16 year old sons what was getting ready to be on the news that night. And it was probably <laughs> one of the hardest things I've ever done. And I still to this day question whether Debbie and I at that point, while I believe that the lawsuit did many things uh, that has been helpful overall in addressing the problem, I also know it tore our family to shreds and it, cause problems in our relationships uh, that I don't know if they'll ever be able to be uh, taken care of because it, it just put them in a, in a horrible situation, two young kids, two, um, that all of a sudden their friends are talking to them about it. And, you know, it's just, it was not a good situation. And this speaks to the long-term repercussions of this because even that can be traced back to the actions of Father Abs Kevin. Absolutely, yes. um, absolutely. Shannon, I was, I was curious because you said something earlier when this uh, started breaking that your mother had dropped some perhaps hints of other people she thought may have been affected. Uh, from what you have said of your parents, it, um, you know, they seem to have been, you know, concerned about the faith, active in the church. So I'm sure if they had, they didn't know about this um, immediately. At what no. point, or I assume, right. I assume no. that, at what point did they become aware? Well, now my dad died in 1986, so I never was able to have a discussion with him, with, it, with any of this, because right. I had pushed things so far back. Um, it was. Did you have any memory uh, gaps? Oh. So well, I'm sorry, I, yes, John has years. read the book. I have heard the overview of it. Yes. I've not had a chance to actually yes. read the book. I just know it's very um, common. Yes. Um, with me, uh, there's lots of different ways, psychiatric ways that you can talk about it, you know, whether it's regression or mm -hmm. dissociation or multiple personality disorder. I've had all three of those terms 
uh, used with me. I pushed things so far back. I learned how to focus on something else to, to take my focus off of what was happening. And it wasn't until my 30s that I really realized, I mean, I was always afraid of things that other people weren't afraid of. I was right. afraid of certain smells, certain noises, uh, certain phrases, uh, the smell of beer. Um, but you didn't know why. Didn't know why. Didn't know why. Uh, there were two songs that if I heard them, I would just start crying. And, and they were very, even to this day, you'll hear them now and then, Strangers in the Night yeah. by Frank Sinatra. Yeah. He used to sing it to me. Um, Blue Spanish Eyes, which yeah. was early, early in the 60s. Uh, now, I don't know if maybe tried to sing Blue Irish Eyes because uh, we were so Irish. But, sure. uh, but, there, the, but there were when just, these things happened, you I didn't, didn't connect it to that. I, no. No, I just knew I was absolutely terrified, just terrified. And then um, my dad died when I was 26. And when I was 30, Steve and I, my husband, started doing mission work in Appalachia. And uh, Steve was not baptized into any religion. He had just known that from the day we started dating, if he wanted to see me on the weekends, it was going to be planned around going to church. Right. That was just the way it was. <laughs> Good for you. And um, yeah, um, my dad, Bernie Shaughnessy, had one rule when it came to church attendance. One rule. The only rule. There was not a single reason why you couldn't be at church except for one exclusion. Your own death. If you were dead, if you were dead, then you could miss church. Gosh. Okay, but all right. That was it. Um, my mother was right there with him. Yeah, my mom right. and dad, the greatest thing. That's good. The greatest thing my mom and dad gave me, and I will cherish it forever, is my faith in God, mm. and my faith in the Catholic Church. Okay. Um, it was. It was the meter by which we measured our lives. It was the foundation of every decision we made. Um, and so that has been the mainstay of my being able to to get out of this, even though it was so much a part of this. Um, when I was 30, as I said, Steve and I were in this mission work, and all of a sudden my husband decided after a year and a half of mission work, that he wanted to become Catholic for sure. <laughs> wow. Now I must I must go back a little bit. My husband and I went through two and a half years of RCIA. I never knew before my husband that you could fail RCIA. Not really fail it. <laughs> right, right, right. Not really before. fail it. But he would get to the end of it and he was just like, eh, I just don't know, Shannon. I just don't know. And there was a nun at the time at our church, Sister Sister Catherine Hanrahan, Sister Kitty, as we all called her. And she kept telling me, Shannon, just shut up. You talk too much. Just shut up and pray. <laughs> okay, sister. She right. said, you need to stop talking to him about it. He needs to make that decision on his own. So in November, uh, the weekend before Thanksgiving of 1991, we were doing a mission trip down to Eastern Kentucky, mm -hmm. and we would always have mass at this little glass-enclosed chapel on Mount Tabor. And after mass was over, Steve came to me, and we were getting the kids who were very little at the time. I guess Patrick was two. Uh, Austin was six. 
uh, getting him in the car. And he says, I have something really cool to tell you. And I was like, okay. So I get in the car, everybody's all buckled in and everything. And he says, I told Father Tom that I want to come into the church. I want to be uh, baptized right here on Mount Tabor. And I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and he said, no, Shannon, really? I said, yeah, we've been through this a couple times, hon. I'll believe it when I see it. So this is on a Saturday night. So Sunday I was at work and I am told that my husband is calling me and I pick up the phone and, and he says, guess what I did? And I said, no idea what. He said, I called mom and told her I'm joining the church. He had always worried about his mother because they were very much so like anti-Catholic. And yeah. when he told me he called his mother, I was like, oh, my God, you're really going to do this this, this time. <laughs> and he said, yep, I'm going to do it. So our best friends um, at our parish uh, sat with us for a couple of weekends putting together this whole wonderful mass. 32 people from St. Luke's, including Sister Kitty, our singing nun, traveled all the way to Eastern Kentucky and Steve was baptized and it was a glorious day. It was just wonderful. My it's mom beautiful. went along and oh my <laughs> Lord, she was just, you know, singing to the high heavens. That's she so was beautiful. so happy. Um, but just preceding this, I was starting to have a lot of nightmares again and a lot of smells and sounds and things were really starting to worry me. And I would be on my way to work and I would you know, at 6.30 in the morning, I would be thinking, something is wrong with me. There is something really wrong with me, uh, but I don't know what it is. I just know something is very not right. So Steve gets baptized on February the 8th, 1992. I'm a date person. Okay? Uh, yeah. I could tell hey, you, me too. <laughs> I could tell you the date of just about everything that's ever happened in my life. Wow. And um, on May the 7th, my mom and I were talking on the phone, and uh, she told me that one of my cousins was at Our Lady of Peace. And this cousin, to me, was one of the most put together, in control. I mean, she was just all that. Yeah. And um, when she told me, she said, you do know. I said, well, why is, why is she in there? And she said, well, her Dad abused her when she was young. And I was like, oh, okay. She says, well, you do know Father Kevin abused your sister. And it was just like uh, Domino's, Pandora's box opened. Uh, everything just started running through my mind. And uh, I wanted to go. I just wanted to run. I remember I told her I had to go and I hung up the phone and um, I just sat there. I, I was just like, oh my God, that's, that's the key. Yeah. Um, and so all these memories just started flooding and flooding and flooding and flooding. And for three days, I kept it to myself because I was terrified. You know, my husband just joined the church and now I want to run. I don't, you know, I just, I've got to get out of here. My uh, goodness gracious. And three days later, I finally sat down with Steve and I said, I have something horrible to tell you. He said, okay. Now, at this point, we had been together um, almost 12 years, 11 years, 12 years. We had been married nine and a half years. Uh, so we did a lot of years together. 
and here I am going to tell my husband something that I never really had understood about myself and just lay this bomb on the table three months after he joined the church. And so I said, um, I have to tell you that uh, mom just told me something three days ago that made me understand why I'm weird, if you will. And he said, okay. I said, Steve, I was abused by a priest when I was little. And he said, I know. And I was like, wait a minute. I, 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 what do you mean you know? I just have discovered this myself. How could you possibly know? He said, the day that we got married, we were getting ready to leave to go on our honeymoon, and your dad took me aside and said, Shannon, Shannon has had some really bad things happen to her when she was little. A priest really messed her up when she was a small girl. Please be gentle with her tonight. And I just lost it. Uh, uh, I said, if you knew, how could you marry me? How You've always called me your, your virgin bride. How? And he said, Shannon, what he did to you, you couldn't control. Um, you are my virgin bride. And so for the next few weeks, um, I was just all over the map. One minute, you know, let's just, I, I haven't known about this all this time. Uh, let's just put it back in the box. Don't want to look at it. Don't want to look at it. Um, but then on the next minute, I was having all these horrific, just horrific nightmares and flashbacks and, and, and seeing everything in my, in my head. Um, and so I went to the deacon at our parish. I didn't want to go to the priest for obvious reasons. Right. Um, but I, I went to the deacon and he listened to me. This deacon was so dear to us. He was Steve's godfather. Wow. Uh, and he, when he got done listening to me, he said, can I ask you one question? And I said, sure. He said, if it hasn't bothered you all these years, why would you even want to bring it up now? Jeez. And I thought, oh, my God. Uh, okay. All right. And we hung up. About a week later, the phone rang again. And this was long before you could look on the phone and see who was calling you, you know. Right. But I picked up the phone, and he told me who it was, and... Um, he started just apologizing and apologizing and apologizing. Shannon, I'm so sorry. I know I must have wounded you even more than you're already wounded. I handled it totally in the wrong way. Uh, can you ever forgive me? And of course, I said yes, because this is a dear, dear man. <coughs> he meant no harm. He just didn't yeah. understand, as so many people in that day didn't understand. Again, right, you go back to the culture. Yes. It, what, the, the early to this early was 90s wasn't a whole lot different no. from the 60s and 70s no. as far no. as the perception of the church. And he said, Shannon, I want to help you get some counseling set up. Um, I'm going to call the order that he was with, and we'll see what we can get set up. And so he got counseling set up, and the bishop, or exalt, uh, 
auxiliary. He, thank you. I can't say that word. Uh, Bishop at the time, his sister was my first therapist. And it was on a Catholic campus. Uh, she was a former nun. And we sat down the first time. And the first thing she Martha taught me how to do was how to find a safe place. Because she could tell that's what I needed the most. I had to be able to feel safe again. And she said, okay, so here's what we're going to do. You're going to find some place in your home. And... You get whatever you need there. Uh, it, if it's a, a coffee cup, I said, I don't drink coffee. I drink tea. She goes, okay, a teacup. If you want to get a teacup, get you a blanket. If you want a stuffed animal, whatever you need to feel safe. And when these thoughts start coming, that's your safe place. You go there and you just keep in your mind. You're safe. He's gone. He can't hurt you. Um, that's in the past. Okay. I said, but what do I do when I'm not home? Because most, you know, I'm a, I'm a working mother. What do I do? She said, okay, we're going to find a way for you to go in your head to a safe place. And so we came up with this idea uh, that my safe place was I was going to go to the beach. I was going to throw my beach towel down. I was going to put my suntan oil on. I was going to put my sunglasses on. I was going to get my paperback book. I was going to lay back on my towel. And this is where I was safe. Mm. And so many times people would see me in a trance-like state. Sometimes my eyes were open. Sometimes they weren't. What they didn't realize is whatever had just happened that made me go back there had now caused me to go to my safe place. <coughs> and this is something, you know, that was in 1992. Um, that's 31 years ago. And yeah. I still go to my safe place from time to time. Uh, other than my my, fav my favorite safe place is no longer a chair. It's my honey. It's my honey. Uh, Steve is my safe place. Uh, my sons are my safe place. I know that they will never let me be in danger again. I think there's something so beautiful um, in, in what you were saying about that. When a person has these kinds of wounds, which have been inflicted by another person, ultimately, we know that only God can heal that. But he uses, as we see in the incarnation, human means to do that. Absolutely. And the healing that you're, you are beginning to tell us about and will continue in your story is not just the direct healing of God working inside of you, but your your husband who is oh, also sitting in the room right yes. now as we're recording this and, right. and hearing this i was so moved i was so touched by what you were saying about him and what a what a beautiful lesson that is to the two of us men sitting right here who are married men um and not talking about situations like this right. but just the fact that we as married men can show the love of christ to our children, to our spouses, and how tangible, how meaningful that is, because we're humans. We need that human touch. And insofar as we may have been wounded through another human, sometimes God uses another human to help bring that healing. Absolutely. And uh, I just met your husband for the first time today, but he sounds like a yeah. absolutely amazing He's my rock. Being. He's my yeah. rock. I'm his pebble. He's my rock. Um, Shannon, uh, I, I have to say, as, as you share this story, it's, it's 
it's very near and dear to my heart because, you know, as I said at the beginning of this, this time together, that I didn't know you existed a few weeks ago. And by the grace and miracle of God, uh, he brought us together. And it's something that I, I feel called to voice in the right way. But um, I always wondered why my parish went through such difficulties in the 1990s and early 2000s with our school closing, our parish almost closing, our parish burning down, all this debt getting loaded onto us, and we felt completely neglected and confused and lost for so many years. And even after we rebuilt in this resurrection, it didn't feel like that because our priests got depression after the abuse scandal broke, and I mm -hmm. absorbed so much of this negativity, and then he died when I was 16 years old. Um, and yet, at the same time, of absorbing a lot of that negativity, I absorbed the faith, the determination, the strength of my grandma being the director of religious education and and my parents, you know, my dad being on the finance and the parish council, my mom in the choir and decorating for the church and and all the work that they did. My, my mom being in a Catholic rock band to raise money for the re rebuilding of the church. Like these things that I always felt were, there's a reason I grew up with this. And then as I went on my own journey of healing, that to stumble onto the beauty and power of theology of the body that mm -hmm. brought so much clarity about my own family and my own self and sins. And now this, to learn that this took place, obviously in many places, but in the very heart of my parish, <laughs> it unlocked something in me in my life and I, I if God ever would have if there was ever a reason that God would allow a church to burn down it would be for what would have happened in that building well and and the funny point of that uh, mom called Debbie the morning that the church was burning down it was like three or four o'clock in the morning and mom was sitting on her couch facing the church burning down and she was crying, and she told Debbie, I, I saw it come up, and now I'm watching it burn to the ground. Um, and this was five years after Debbie and I had both started into our therapy, et cetera. Um, and about an hour later, Debbie called me, and she said, the church is burned to the ground. And I was like, do what? She said, it, 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 Mom said, it's burnt to the ground. It's it's gone. I said, are, are we talking about St. Luke's? And she said, yeah. She said, it's it's burnt to the ground, Shannon. Um, and we were both just in shock. And then later on, after the uh, investigation went through, um, it was found that there was a short and an extension cord, I believe, in one of the confessionals. And uh, Debbie had been terrified, just terrified, that the police were going to come and question her or myself because she thought that they would think, now keep in mind at that time there was very few people that knew what had happened to us, but she thought that they would come directly to us and think we burned the church down because of what happened in those confessionals and in the sacristy and in all these other. My sister was terrified. And then when it came out that it had started in the confessional, um, it's profound. Yeah, it's it was profound. just, she was, it took 
years for her to get over that fear that somebody was going to show up at our door with handcuffs to arrest us because it happened in the same place that it, the burn, that the fire, the fire started. started. Uh, I God. don't know that she ever got over that fear. I really don't. Um, Debbie and I really, our whole way of dealing with this was so different. Um, not to say that mine was better than hers. There's a million ways to heal. And uh, Debbie was a very, very sensitive child, easily, easily uh, upset. And she was one that carried everything in her heart. And Debbie was so wounded by what happened to us that she never overcame it. She, uh, to her dying day, if you ask her why life had been so hard for her, well, you know what he did to us. Yeah. I mean, she never got to a point of healing. Um, some of the stuff that Father Kevin did to us was so intrusive, but also, uh, I have to go to the story of the plates. You may see here, there are three china plates. Um, so it's up a little bit higher here. Okay. The camera angle. There we go. Okay. Yeah, when my father was sent to uh, Japan in 1968, and Father Kevin was in Korea, Father Kevin used to take pictures of us. That was one of his big things. And I mentioned the the coffee table um, in his apartment. Well, he would sit us on the coffee table and take pictures. Um, the one on in on this side, that's my sissy in her first communion dress. I know it wasn't her first communion day because she's wearing black shoes, which we all know that a good little Catholic girl would have not done that on her first communion day. Um, <laughs> I was just in one of the little dresses that mom always put us in. Well, when daddy went to, or to Japan and father to Korea, father took those pictures of us and gave them to dad. Plus dad took a picture of their wedding, which had happened in 1957. And um, while daddy was in Japan, he had a Japanese artist paint these on these plates. And so when he came home from Japan, these were my mother's prized possessions. And somewhere around that time, my dad bought my mom a china cabinet and she put them on the top shelf and they were to be displayed for everyone. She was so proud of them. Um, in 1993, right after Debbie started her therapy, Debbie asked mom to take those plates down. And mom said, no, they're my plates. And Debbie said, mom, I don't think you understand the significance they have to Shannon and, and to me, because those are pictures of us in his apartment, yeah. um, that he took of us on one of those weekends. And mom said, well, you know, I'm sorry, but your dad gave those to me as a present. And they're mine and they're important to me and they're staying. Now, Goodness. did she realize? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, was this just another form of her denial? Don't Could know. Could be. Yeah. Um, it's hard but to understand. Any, oh, it's really hard to understand. Though. The first thing <laughs> when we got after my mother died in 2001, she had been in the hospital for a week with a heart attack. And when we got back to the house that night, um, there were two things that 
we each gravitated towards Debbie and myself, that we wanted to get out of that house. Uh, and this again shows the difference in our ways of healing. We had now both been in therapy for a decade, mm -hmm. practically. Um, I went to the kitchen cabinet that had these two little cups in them that mother used to make us drink milk, breakfast and lunch every day. And we both hated milk, but by <laughs> Jove, you're going to drink your, I'm not going to have you dying from bone collapse and all this stuff. <laughs> so I went straight to the cabinet and got those two cups out. I said, Debbie, in the garbage, opened up the can, threw them in. <laughs> she went directly to the china cabinet. And my sissy took the pictures down and she handed them to me and she said, I don't ever want to see him again. You can keep them. You can crush them. You can do whatever you want, but I don't ever want to see him again. And so I took them home and put them in my china cabinet on a shelf in the bottom. They were totally covered. Nobody was ever going to see them again. Um, and a lot of people have asked me why have I kept these plates? And that's a good question. Um, on some days, I want to. What's what's it called when you throw the or the machine throws the plate up in the air and you shoot them? Like skeet is a skeet shooting. Skeet shooting. Yeah. Yes. Okay. There's been many days that I've thought skeet shooting would be a great sport to take up with these plates. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But on the other days, these two little girls walked out of that room, and I have to honor that. I have to honor their courage and their determination. And someday when I'm gone, I've given my son's permission if they should want to. They can put them in the skeet machine. They can blow them up. They can put them in my casket. I don't care. They won't be important to me anymore because I'll be not worried about them anymore. But I can't get rid of them now because these two little girls made it out of that room. And for you to bring those here, Shannon, is... Uh profound and symbolic and I know you're someone of great symbolism yes yes <laughs> um, that's what the sacramental worldview the sacramental life is all about right being able to see the invisible through the visible mm -hmm. and these may be symbols of pain and suffering but yet through this testimony that you are sharing it is I believe before our very eyes transforming into symbols of resurrection, healing, and hope for so many that you are giving to those who have suffered, who have not yet come out of that those rooms where right. those things took place in their lives. And you are giving them visible hope, tangible, a tangible reality that it's it's possible. It is possible. It is possible. And I think now what we need to do, if I can be so bold, we need to leave this behind and talk about what happened after. Yeah. Okay. Let's go. Yeah. Let's do that. On past, uh, because that's where the real miracles happen. That's yeah. where the real, the story happens, because I don't want to be stuck back there anymore. Um, I have to say, before we move on to that, though, my sister never overcame this. My sister died in uh, 2014. Um, she was still very, very hurt, very bitter, very angry. Um, 
She had left the Catholic Church decades b- before, and I, I understand why she did it. It was too too traumatizing for her to be around the sacraments. Uh, we have a different way of looking at things. Like I said, healing is very different for different people. And she never could come to grips with that. Um, and she was very faithful in her new church. And she was, you know, she she had great faith in God. Yeah. Great faith in God to the day she died. Uh, she just could no longer profess it in the way we were brought up. Yeah. But... We have to remember that uh, one of the terms I used for years was that I was stuck in the muck. Uh, I understood the muck. I understood the depression. I understood um, at at the time that all this stuff finally broke through. Now I understood why I tried to commit suicide so many times. Now I understood why I was many times my worst enemy, my, my own self, because I would do things that would cause these memories to come back up. Uh, other times they just slap you in the face when you were absolutely not expecting it. And, you know, I went through years, those first 10 years of therapy were brutal, were just b- brutal, but they were brutal for my family too. And they formed this core around me and <clears throat> finally helped me to realize that what lies outside of the monk is much it's life-giving. And at that point, I started really learning how to rise above that muck and try to stay out of that muck. Yes, I might get slapped in the face again. Uh, that's always going to happen. But there are ways to still believe in God, still believe in the Catholic Church, still believe that it's the universal church that Jesus Christ set it up to be, Uh to still believe in the sacraments, even those those very sacraments were used in my abuse, I could still find beauty in those sacraments. Um, and that's when the real healing began. And this was probably the mid-2005, 2006. Uh, I was involved in, in a lot of different uh, things that were going on with the local uh, survivors. And we were learning and trying to find new ways to heal. And everything, you know, was was doing pretty well. Until around 2009, 2010, my darling husband at that point of 15 years, I guess, somewhere around there, uh, he decides he wants to be a Catholic deacon. <laughs> and I was like, you are kidding me, right? This is, this is a joke. all of that. Yeah, this, is, this is a that. joke, right? No, Shannon, I feel a calling. I'm like, hell no. There's no way. There's no way. You do realize, dear, that in this archdiocese, for the deacon to be in formation, the wife, number one, has to sign off on <laughs> yeah, it. Right. Right. And number two, she has to go to all the classes. Oh, and my he gosh. Goes, yeah. I said, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. There's no way in hell. So I called Dr. Brian Reynolds, who by that time, Brian and I were yeah. good friends. And I said, Brian, is there any way that, you know, I could get like an, an exemption where I didn't have to go? And he goes, nope, Shannon, you have to understand the reason that we do that. It's because your husband in this formation period, will be reformed. And you will be reformed. And if you don't journey with him in that process, 
you're not going to recognize the man that comes out of this. Mm. Mm. So Steve asked me again. I said, hell no. (laughs) (laughs) So about two years later, he came to me again. He told me, you know, back then he told me I was being insensitive. And I was like, (laughs) so two years later, uh, he comes to me again. And he starts this whole conversation again. And I'm like, Really? We're going to go back here again. You really, Shannon, you don't understand. I truly have a call. I said, Steve, you know what I would have to go through. You know what we would have to go through. This is all less than 10 years after the lawsuits and everything, right? Yes. The lawsuits were 2002. This is early, early 2011. And so I talked to my, my pastor at the time, Father Scott, and he just laughed at me. He says, oh, honey, he says, you just never know what God's going to, uh, what road he's going to take you on. And I'm like, he ain't taking me on this one, Padre. It ain't happening. Because I'm not going. <laughs> not going. So two or three weeks later, Steve said, after church, let's go for a drive today. We both love taking drives out in the country. So we get out in the country and he says, so... Oh, I just want to, you can still say no, but we're going to this church out in the country where they're having a, a greet, meet and greet session with the diaconate about, you know, what it would be like to be a deacon. And I just like, wait, he was already driving you there at that yes. moment. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not going. He goes, Shannon, Shannon, please, please. I love it. Just go to the meeting. Just listen to what they have to say. I'm not saying that we're going to do it, but please just at least listen. I said, okay, I'll go, but I'm not going to like it. And he said, okay, that's fine if you don't like it. And if you want to leave, we can leave, whatever. So uh, we got there. I thought at one point he was going to have to throw me over his shoulder and carry me in. I that much did not want to go, but... We went in, and in this room, there were two or three six-foot-long tables, and all around them are these deacons and their wives. And they've all, these deacons have got their little collars on and their little shirts, and I'm thinking, oh. So we sat there, and I watched my husband, and he had tears in his eyes. And I could see he really had a deep calling. This was something that was just tugging at his, no, I won't even say tugging at his heart. It was just pulling him. And so the crafty Shannon thought, I've got a way out of this. So after it was all over with, at the time, the uh, diaconate director was Deacon Bob Hall and his wife, Sherry. And they, after the whole thing was over, uh, I got Deacon Bob and Deacon Sherry to the side. I said, I have a question for you. He said, yes. I said, my husband, Steve here, he wants to be a deacon. If your wife sued the Catholic Church, can you be a deacon? (laughs) I thought I had it it in the bag, you know? Not many people can ask that question. (laughs) I got it in the bag. This man's going to say, there's the door, lady. And Deacon Bob said, first of all, Shannon, I want to tell you I'm so sorry this happened. And I thought, so different from the first time. Yeah. And I said, thank you for that. He said, but let me tell you, I don't have a problem with it. And I doubt our archbishop would have a problem with it too. And I will tell you this, if you all decide to come in the program, I'm getting ready to retire f- 
from being the director. I won't be the director of your class. Notice he said, your class. He said, but what I will tell you is during the process of that five years, each couple has a mentor couple that they can go to that helps them along the road, that helps them with questions, that helps them with anything. He said, Sherry and I would love to be your all's mentor couple. Uh, wow. <laughs> I could be a part of that. I could be a part of somebody and some thing that truly, truly was willing to walk hand in hand with us. Yeah. And so the next morning, Steve signed the papers and I signed below him and he applied for the diaconate. And um, it was beautiful, it was wonderful, and it was awful, and it was terrible, and it was triggering. And the people that became our classmates uh, are some of my closest friends, our closest friends. Uh, they became armor around me. They carried both of us. Um, they walked with us. They cried with us. Um, at one of our uh, retreats that we had to go every year to St. Minerit's, which to me was very triggering. It's up on a hill and all these guys are walking around in the same things that Father Kevin used to walk sure. around in. Um, at one weekend, I had become little again, as I call it. And um, Steve called one of our um, deacon wives well, almost deacon. She wasn't a deacon wives yet, but one of the wives to come to the room. And she laid in that bed with me for hours. And, you know, she was laying with this person who thought she was six. And uh, she stayed with me. And they all stayed with us. And they all... I know theologically, humans can never be angels. We are different entities. They are made differently. Uh, right. But these people became my angel yeah. wings that held me up. What an act uh, of love. I mean, oh, that's so beautiful. It is. It is. Uh, and this was what led us through the whole diaconate formation was this incredible. You had so many people in this room. There were 18 couple. We started out with 20, went to 21, and ended up with 18. But you had all of these people. We had people that had only graduated from high school. We had one guy that had a PhD in computers, which, oh, I'm not a computer person. It gives me the EVs just to think about it, okay? We had school teachers. We had uh, retired Navy. We had a retired lieutenant colonel in the Army. We had uh, a mammographer. I did that for 40 years. And all of us, all, all we wanted was to figure out how to use our gifts in the best possible way through the diaconate process. Um, we had people that were NASCAR fans and others that were wine connoisseurs. You know, it was such a mixed group of people, but we just gelled and we, it, it was just phenomenal. And it, it still is phenomenal. to the communion of saints even, you know, the Absolutely. uniqueness of every single person when they live their vocation fully. Absolutely. Yeah, right. And, Absolutely. And the connection to the angels and the saints, right? There's Absolutely. There's that beautiful imagery that we need. And that's the army, the cloud of witnesses watching over us that give us strength. But that cloud of witnesses 
as also the people in our lives now. Because if we believe in heaven, we're on the path towards sainthood right now. Well, and you never know. And, and this is something that that I always ponder on. You never know uh, what your actions, inactions, your words, not using words, what effect they're going to have on other people. Okay. Um, as Sister Kitty told me, sometimes you just need to shut up and pray. And other t- times you need to actually be proactive and do something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in the diaconate, Steve and I both found ways of being with people many times in hard situations that uh, you would think it could tear you apart having to listen to pain and stuff. But it brought our marriage even closer together. And I'm sure if you talk to any diaconate couple they would they would voice the yeah. same thing because it's Christ centered. Your whole ministry um, is learning to be servant to all. Right. You, you're not supposed to be in this ministry to be on display. Right. To be oh wow I'm a deacon wife. No, it's about service. <laughs> it's about being down there in the muck with the other people and helping them to find yeah. their way out of the muck. Yeah. yeah, this is so, a wheel of fortune. This is like a totally different experience of service and yes. pouring yourself out for others. Yes. And, and uh, it requires an openness. And it's almost like God knew exactly what you all needed for deeper healing. Absolutely. And that was yeah. the step you didn't Absolutely. want to take, no, but he I didn't. knew it was the path. Yeah, I've got a lot of penance still to do over all those <laughs> hell no's, you know. How many times I told him hell no. Um, and I have to tell you, my God has a great sense of humor. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here because he has to have really... Oh, you know, my plans and... And in his timing. Oh, you know? absolutely. Always <laughs> in his timing because, you know, I'm a very impatient person sometimes. And I'm like, God, now, 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 now. And, I think um, we all are. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I've had to learn. I've had to learn. And especially in the last few years, uh, I've finally come to accept God has a plan. Mm-hmm. Okay. And all of my problems, all of my worries, everything that happened to me, God's already figured out the end. It's already in place. It's already in place. He knew that this was the road that I needed to take to get to where I am now. And even though some parts of that road were very, very hard, very uncomfortable, just horrible, uh, the blessings that that it has brought to myself and hopefully to other people and knowing that I think I've talked to you a number of times about this, John. I've I've been asked so many times, how can you believe in this God who didn't stop the abuse? Hmm. Okay, first and foremost, we would be nothing but robots if God had not given us our freedom of will. Okay? Right. I don't want to be a robot. But unfortunately, sometimes, many times, we can use that freedom to do things that are hurtful, um, tragically in some ways, to other people. Sometimes we mean it. Sometimes we have no idea we've even done it. That's why we always, you know, confess of our sins of commission and sins of omission. 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 Because sometimes it's what we should have done, but we didn't. Um, I truly, truly 
believe in my heart of hearts that we all have to realize that every single person that's ever conceived, ever born, every one of them, there's not a single one that God doesn't love just as much as he loves me or you or you. God loves Father Kevin. He's his child. He took pleasure in Father Kevin becoming a human. Does he take pleasure in what Father Kevin did? Absolutely not. Okay? But if in the last millisecond of Father Kevin's life, he truly repented and asked forgiveness for what he did, I'm going to see him again someday. And I am absolutely okay with that because I hope that in the last millisecond of life, if there's anything that I haven't confessed beforehand, but that God will know my heart that I'm sorry and that I want to go to heaven with him, that I'm going to end up in heaven too. And we're all going to be healed there. Father Kevin's no longer going to be the person who did this. God makes all things new. He is the great restorer, the great creator, but also recreator. And what you said just then struck such a chord in me because it's almost identical to what my spiritual director told me. Um, Actually, yes, it was my spiritual director a few weeks ago. And this is why forgiveness is so important. It's so difficult, Mm -hmm. but it's so important. Especially in a case like yours, I cannot imagine how difficult it is to forgive somebody who has done something so truly diabolical, okay? Mm -hmm. Such absolute evil, not only towards you, but then also corrupting the use of the sacraments, the image of God, the image of the priest, causing your sister to leave the church because she was not able to accept it. I mean, this is... There's a level of evil here that yes. is difficult to express. So I can't imagine the difficulty for you to forgive. And yet it is essential. Jesus says this, it's one of the most consistent themes of his ministry in various parables and various stories, mm-hmm. you know, of we've been forgiven, we must forgive others. Um, but I was speaking to my spiritual director a few weeks ago, and I was asking for advice on family matters. My wife and I have eight children. There are days where there is a lot of challenge and (laughs) I would love to tell you that I'm completely perfect and that my family is completely perfect. They're much more so than I am, but occasionally I get very frustrated and I get Mm -hmm. tired and tempers flare and I find people annoying and irritating and right, this is human life, this happens. And I was asking for advice on this on, you know, how to be more patient, how to not lose my temper, how to not be so angry when someone I think has offended me or or annoyed me in some way. And his point was, you have a wife and children, don't you want to be with them in heaven forever? And I said, yes. And he's like, well, then you better start getting along with them right now. Mm. You know, that brings up a good point that Mm. I didn't learn until I was in the diaconate. Okay. Do you know what your greatest um, job is? The most important job you have as husbands. 
helping your wife to get yeah. to heaven. Yeah. And her most important job is yeah. to get you yeah. to heaven. The, the sanctification of the spouse is the central role to which the other spouse is called. Exactly. Yes. So that's your most important role. That's very role. true. That's your well, most important role. You know, I knew that, and thank you for reminding me, because yeah. I completely forgot. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and it speaks to the power of your, you all as a couple, as a witness. Mm -hmm. in the, the, and, and this is where I, my theology, the body, comes out. Like John Paul II talks about our original innocence being broken into three original experiences of original solitude, original unity, and original nakedness. And that solitude is, you know, Adam in the garden before Eve, but it's also each individual person, man and woman, because Adam before Eve was really mankind, man mm -hmm. and woman. And that was in the solitude, you know, he, a solitude before yourself and God. But original unity is that movement toward encounter and meeting the other. And that fascination, that mutual submission, uh, of, again, in the fulfillment out of reverence for Christ, that is the, the deeper image of God than just individual people made in the right. image and likeness of God. Yeah. The image and likeness of it's God. Trinitarian image now. The yes. visible image of God on earth is a man and woman loving each other rightly mm -hmm. and and seeing each other and the in the use of these words that are so sacred, you know, bride and bridegroom and and husband and wife and man and woman. Obviously we know in the, in this world and society they're losing their meaning mm -hmm. because they have been so twisted up. Yes. You know, why would something like this have hit the church but to cripple her influence mm -hmm. and to discount her teachings and to twist the perceptions of others toward the church so that even more uh, rebellion could take place mm -hmm. with so many people not knowing their identity, not knowing gender, not knowing who they really are because of the, their own self-inflicted wounds as well as the things that they're exposed to uh, on a level that many weren't exposed to before social media, um, pornography being, of course, huge. But this, the things that took place in your life were well before any of this hit. Mm -hmm. hit. And yet, it was also the 1960s, yeah. right. which was the height of the sexual which is revolution. When all the, the twisting of the culture was going to be. It really started exploding yeah. from yeah, there. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and you know, something else that I think that we've learned too. Um, back then, when Father Kevin went to seminary and everything, he started in the eighth grade. These were boys. Yeah. They were never taught anything about normal human sexuality. Mm -hmm. They were supposed to stomp it down. Right. Okay. Right. Because they're going to be a priest. So there have been a one, a lot of wonderful priests that came through that and sure. did wonderful things. But we can now see that we have to, even if we're going to say, you want to be a priest, you know, we can start doing classes. We can't stomp things down. They right. still have to be taught how to deal with their own sexuality, mm -hmm. even in an abstinence. Yeah. In abstinence, you know, uh, you still have to understand your sexuality. And yes. I think many times that could be part of the problem with some of these priests. They were so ill-formed in that segment of their life mm -hmm. that they and didn't know what to do with it. I would imagine that if someone is older when they enter the formation, 
um, it would be a little bit easier to discover at that point if they have any psychological tendencies and True. so forth that may not have come right. up earlier. So, uh, Shannon, you were talking earlier, and I think you used uh, the word a couple of times about being stuck in the muck. Yes, right? yes. And the first half of this conversation, we were talking about the muck. And then you're talking about the journey to the diaconate, and this is the getting unstuck part, yes. the healing, which we yes. want to get around to. So uh, maybe we could take like a short break and then yeah. talk about the rest of the getting unstuck from the muck part. Okay. Yeah, let's yeah, do that. Sure. All right. Well, everyone, we'll, we'll be back uh, shortly with more of Shannon Age's incredible heroic story here on Spirit Inspire. See you soon. Hey everyone, this week's episode is sponsored by Family Renewal Project. FRP is a local theology of the body apostolate in service to the Archdiocese of Louisville. They're dedicated to renewing the culture through the renewal of the family. They have so many amazing things going on, so check them out at familyrenewalproject.com. Welcome back to Spirit Inspire, everyone. I'm your host again, John Soule. Uh, and uh, we've been talking with Shannon Age, a powerful story of healing and redemption and uh, intense suffering uh, in order for her to get there. And uh, I just first want to thank you for your courage, for your you. honesty, for your love, for your mercy, for your witness. And it gives us, in, in the whole Archdiocese of Louisville, hope that it's possible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. True hope. And for me, being a member of the very parish where much of this took place, it's unlocked uh, the key to my own past. I've just through reading your book, through talking to you the past few weeks, it's like I relived the 1990s, the early 2000s, and I was able to have more compassion on so many people that I didn't understand why they were reacting in this way. And obviously, mm -hmm. Not everyone would have been aware of what happened or, or would have uh, responded uh, the way they did because of what happened in your life because we were dealing with the traumas of losing the school and the, and the near closing right. the parish and the burning down. But I look at them as spiritually linked. There, there was great evil done on the grounds of what should have been sacred ground, holy right. ground, right. sacramental ground, and... That sacredness was violated and twisted, and that is what I think God was trying to wash away, to renew in, in a way that brought healing and hope. And obviously, we had to address it when the initial truth was coming out, right. you know? Right. But now, years later, I feel like God has put us in a position by which we can look at this objectively. Um, not in a way that's removed or distant, but in a way that's um, confident and stable mm -hmm. and safe. Yes. Well, when it first came out in 2002, um, you know, my mom and dad both were gone by then. And uh, there were a lot of people that didn't want to believe it because we had never really told other than our very close friends and some family members. Um, and so it was very, very hard because they, first of all, they didn't want to believe it. Nobody wants to believe this, of course, right? right? So they didn't want to believe that. Um, and so there was a lot of really, really hard stuff said to both Debbie and me, as with all the others in the lawsuit, there was a lot of uh, hard lines that were kind of drawn in the sand between the clergy and the people that were suing the, ch the church. Um, 
And in a way, and again, looking through that lens, um, it truly re-victimized most of us because mm. all of a sudden we're now bearing the burden of because of us in this lawsuit, this church is being closed and that person's losing their job and this organization, you know, and that was what people were saying. I had so many people that said to me, I didn't give my money to my church for somebody like you to have it. It was never about the money for us. The, the only way we were going to get the archdiocese to the table to change policy was if we did something like this. Exactly. And yes. years later, you know, after Dr. Reynolds and I became friends, he too was grateful that we had done it because these policies had to change. Correct. In addition to the policies we changed in the archdiocese, a group of the survivors went on about a eight or 10 year journey of changing laws in the state of Kentucky because up until that time, Unless you were actually raped, if you were abused from the day you turned 12 on, unless it was an actual rape, it was considered a misdemeanor in Kentucky. Are you kidding? No. I did not know that. That's... So we, a group of us uh, started working on that, and then more people came in and, and kind of took over the process, and we got those laws changed here in Kentucky. Praise the Lord. For the kids. Yeah. Okay, right. so these are things that that happened that even though it was so painful to to feel like everybody was shaming you, well, you've already had your say. You were in the newspaper. Um, we finally felt like we're making progress here. Yeah. We were told by some of our closest friends and by the person who was in charge of Catholic Charities at the time, um, who I had worked with for years as the social concerns chairperson at, at our parish. Uh, he told me that the day that I sued the church, I sued him personally. This is our Catholic charities telling a victim. It's horrible. Um, now, 20 years later, everything, I won't say everything, but the vast majority of opinion has been changed. Right. We're now seen as the survivors that we are, that what we did had to be done that we did not cause anything bad to happen. Right. Bad right. things happened to us. And to see that turnaround has been so healing, so very healing. Um, what a lifetime you've been Absolutely, married. absolutely. And I know um, from probably 2002 on, so many people would come to me and tell me, you need to write this down. You need to write a book. And I was like, oh no, I just really don't want to go there. Well, then I started five years ago. I started going back. I'm one that sporadically journals. I'm not a good person that journals all the time, but I might journal here and then two years later journal something else. And I started going back and looking at all these journals. And I had all these really great journal entries as I was going through, you know, all the way back to the very ending of the book. The last thing in here uh, that I wrote was a poem, and it says, Race, race, race away time, fly past like the raging wind, leave behind a whispered memory of times past and fantasies of then. Roar like a lion and peak like a mountain with all your dreams to come true. Shine like a star and glow like a candle for a future that's bright and new. 
I wrote that two days before I met my husband in 1981. That's how long these journals have been going on. So I was able to start pulling from them. um, And I got a rough draft going. Mm -hmm. But it was always re-traumatizing to to dig back into that. You know, it was just... So I would write for a week or two, and then I'd throw it in the closet and say, I'm never touching it again. And Steve would say, oh, no, you got to pull it out. No, I don't. You know, so this went on for four years. And finally, I contacted a lady that I used to go to church with who helps people to write books. Um, And she has a company that covers every part of the, the writing, the publishing, all of this kind of stuff to help you move from one step to the next, to the next, to the next. And I said, I'm stuck here. I just don't know what to do. And she said, okay, we'll get together and we'll figure out what to do. So for, I think it was six or eight weeks, she would come over and we would spend three hours a night going over what I had written, what she thought would be okay, what she wouldn't after she read my first draft. When she read the first draft, she came back to me and she said, Shannon, first of all, I love you. Anytime somebody starts off with, first of all, she I love you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh, prepare yourself. I was like, okay, Stephanie, what? She said, what you've got, the bones are good, but I want you to have faith in me. And I want us to tear this apart and put it back together in a totally different form. And I'm like, I thought I was done. I thought we were just polishing. She said, will you trust me? And I prayed on it for days. And I decided she was the one I needed to trust. And so we came up with a totally different format, the, the format that you now find it in, where I would give history and then I would give a journal entry and then more history. And the more journal so that you it, could it's a mystical journey yeah to read so that this. you can take a breath in between so it's just so yeah. not so mired down right um and it was the perfect thing to do and so then we went to the editing phase and um the editor is vastly accomplished vastly uh wonderful knows what she was doing and i felt like an arrow had struck my heart because this was my baby yeah and I reacted not to the best of my ability. Um, and she still finished editing for me, even after I was ugly. Thank the Lord. Um, and so anyway, I got through that stage and we just kept moving on and moving on. And about a month ago, the book came in the mail. And uh, Yeah, can you hold it up a little bit? Yeah. Kind of like towards this camera? Yeah. yeah. Uh, let me see if I can get a, I'll get a close one. But When I Fly. Is a journey the out of darkness. Is. Where can, uh, Shannon, where can people find this? To, uh, you can find this? it right now on Amazon. Okay. Um, you can also go to my website, which is all run together. Uh, it's Shannon, age, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-A-G-E dot com. It'll take you to okay. a link. Uh, to order it. Or I've been doing uh, book signings around town. Uh, my next book signing is this coming weekend. Um, it'll be, probably be over before this comes up. Oh, uh, sure. It's at a, a quaint, quaint little shop uh, in Highview called Kim's Pickens. Kim has been, well, she was our youngest son's confirmation sponsor many, many moons ago. And she invited me to come there and do one. I'm hoping to do many more. Uh, we've done 
uh, one at our parish, getting ready to do another one at another parish out by where we live. So we'll just keep on doing that. And do you post um, those dates on your website? I do. Well? I do. So it's shannonage.com. Yes. And so you can buy the book through there. You can see you've got upcoming book signings. Yes. yes. And it's also available, you said, on Amazon. On Amazon. Uh, yes. Yeah, but when I fly. So hopefully we can encourage yes. some people to read the story. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the one thing that I want everyone to take, you know, this is a this is a heavy subject. Yes. This is a hard subject. But my goal for this book, the biggest goal was to show that it's possible to overcome. Right. Okay. The next goal was to show the whole um, process that a, a, a perp can use to get the family and the kids involved. Yeah. Um, my next goal was I'm hoping someday um, I've already had a couple of uh mental health professionals that said that they want to, to give this out to some of their clients, Excellent. Uh, hoping that it could be used in schools that teach about uh, psychology, psychiatry, uh, anything to do with mental health to show that grooming process yeah. because it, you know, I've got so much information here. Um, the other thing is I'm hoping that it'll be used in seminaries so that the men that are going through seminary, can recognize if there is someone in there, yeah. can also recognize how to help people that someday will be their parishioners, that perhaps maybe it's not a priest. It could be their father. It could be their uncle. It could be the right. fireman. It could be anybody. Um, because this happens. This happens. <clears throat> you know, this the, happens. You, you mentioned earlier, you said that it isn't just priests. Uh, statistically, um, the home is number one. You've got it. School teachers are unfortunately next after that. And it is fundamentally these people are in positions of authority or trust. Yes, mm -hmm. always. Um, and so okay. it, is, it is a devastatingly widespread reality right now. And so I think that every priest is going to have parishioners at some point that have dealt with this. And they need that ability to, to be able to understand their, their pain, their wounds, and their story. And the ability to also help them in that journey. Right. There's one chapter in here that I addressed uh, the whole thing of clergy abuse versus other types of abuse. You have to understand that each one has their own stigma. Each one has its own uh, really hard points. I have numerous friends that were abused by a family member. And the family ostracized them because they broke up the happy family. Right. Gosh. Uh, yes. And it's horrific. It's horrific yeah. when the abuser is allowed to still be in Con his role, and, in right. his role. And yet the ones who have been abused are asked, yeah, maybe you better not come because he's going to be here. Um, and it's horrifying. It's so horrifying. You spoke earlier being of re-victimization when the lawsuit happened. Yes. And one, one thought that kind of popped in my head then is, it was, and that is, it's really tragic, but there's a difference because you were doing that to help other people. Yes. And so there is something that relates to the passion of Christ in that suffering. In the first, it's like, it just happened to you as, you know, there's this seeming pointlessness to right. that. The second victimization is one which you were willing to fight through on behalf of others. So it's, 
it's a it's a, a virtue. It's it's an offering. You know, even though it's very wrong of people to have victimized you that second time, you are trying to do this on behalf of other people to change right. laws, to change policies, to change all of these things. So. You know, blessings to you for being willing to stick that out. Well, something you have to realize too is, is the worth of redemptive suffering. I was literally that's, going to say redemptive suffering. suffering. That's what I was thinking. The second, <laughs> uh, the second victimization is part of this, like redemptive suffering, as yeah, opposed yeah. to the first yeah. one. It's yeah, an intentional walk to Calvary, yeah. whereas the other one was it was just happening to you. Yeah. And, oh. Well, and even I, everybody says, "Oh, I bet this was so healing to write this book." No, this was redemptive suffering. Mm. I knew it was going to possibly help other people. Uh, also, so that it just didn't go to my grave with me. There was yeah. too much to learn from this, mm -hmm. okay? Um, but it was horrific to write this book. There was no part of this book that was fun. Um, but what it can do is bring the good out of the bad. It can give hope to someone else that there is a day, there is a day where it's not going to be on their mind 24 hours a day. There's a week where it's not going to be on their mind yeah. all the time. Yeah. There's yeah. going to be a time where you're going to be able to mentor to someone else who's been through the same thing. And the biggest thing that we all need as survivors isn't for somebody to sit here and, and tell us all the things that we could have done or all the things that that person was bad about or all the, we don't need to hear that stuff. What we need is somebody that will sit there with us and just be. You don't have to say anything wonderful and graceful and, and holy. Yeah. You just need to be in the muck with us yeah. and help us give us that hand to get out of the muck. Which is precisely what what Christ does by becoming man, by taking on the human condition. He walks in the muck with us. Yes. Shannon, I know I know we're probably getting to the end of our time here, but there there was a thought that had been on my mind today and prior to today, but kind of concerning this whole topic. And I wanted to kind of ask it of you and get your thoughts on it. So I'm thinking of what it means to be human. And we have this kind of definition of rational animal. Um, so there is both a spiritual component and there is a physical, there is soul and body both. And as humans, we are a composite of that. One or the other are missing, and we're not human. If we're only the rational side, then we're angelic beings. You know, if we're only the physical side, then we're animals or plants or right. something else. Death occurs when what has been joined is separated. When the soul is separated from the body, we experience death. So, uh, thinking of other crimes, if somebody murders somebody, that's terrible because that person was made in the image of God, right? So they're, they're mm -hmm. killing that. And it happens by separating the soul and the body. Similar to that, I've thought, I, I've had this thought for some time now. I feel that every sexual sin is in that category. If you consider an extreme example like rape, it is the complete denial of the spiritual aspect of the other person. It is saying that it is only the physical, only the animal that is of any meaning. Their free will, their interests, their soul, their heart, their mind have no value whatsoever 
to the person who is perpetrating that. Mm -hmm. So in a spiritual sense, it is murder. It is, you are not human, you, the soul is removed, you are nothing more than a material object. And I think that unfortunately, we have become more and more inoculated to this reality as a society because of the prevalence of pornography. Because pornography is the same thing. Mm -hmm. We say that pornography objectifies, it does, but what that really means to me is it denies the humanity of the other right. person. Yes. It reduces the other to only an object, to only the animal, to only the physical, which again, in a spiritual sense, is murder. And as far as pornography goes, we have wholesale accepted this in our culture to where it's not only not frowned upon, it's even considered healthy by many people, right? You know, mm -hmm. it's like a, a positive thing. Whereas both the people involved in the pornography and the actual action of it are completely have been dehumanized for years. And we have addictions and all kinds of mm -hmm. things that, that, that flow from that. And then those viewing are taking the same and also reflecting that back upon themselves, mm -hmm. reducing themselves to, I am merely this as well. Right. And so the reason I bring that up is because for many, many years, I didn't understand something about abuse. I didn't understand why one of the common results of it is things like depression, low self-esteem, and poor self-worth, right? We hear all these terms thrown around. I always thought, well, somebody hurt you. Wouldn't you be really mad at them? Wouldn't you say, I didn't deserve that? But what has happened, especially as a child, and I finally came to realize this through understanding this whole concept, mm -hmm. particularly as a child, when one is more susceptible to those subconscious things that affect you for the rest of your life, you have been told you are nothing. Again, it's spiritual murder. You have been told that you are nothing more than an object. You are not even of the level of human. You are certainly not of the level of being made in the image of God. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the reasons to me why it is such a great evil. And it not only denies the humanity of the other person in general, which any form of abuse or rape do, but it also denies a particular portion, namely the childhood, which is so precious, so fundamental, so foundational for everything that follows. <clears throat> and so I think that many people hear these stories, but they don't fully understand what the victim has been through or why the victim later on expresses certain emotional psychological traits they do. Oh, yeah. And so I think it's important for us to understand that. But in every case of abuse, a person has been told, not through words necessarily, but through actions, you are of no value. You are not made in the image of God. You are not even human. Mm -hmm. And if that happens to you as a child, you cannot help but take that with you for years and years to come. And then so often people will engage in self-destructive behavior mm -hmm. because they realize they have no self-worth or they've been taught that not because it's true it's funny you but should because say that it's our, gotten stuck yes. into the subconscious our youngest son and i were talking about this oh just a few weeks ago and he says mom think about it 
with what all happened to you and Debbie, you both should have ended up dying in a gutter somewhere when you were 25 years old, a crackhead, meth head, alcoholic, that prostitute. That it does happen yeah. often. Uh, I'm told because of the very early age that we were, our whole sense of self was still being formed at that. Right. Um, and therefore, our whole sense of self was absolutely, absolutely skewered. Right. Um, we, of course, felt worthless, both of us. Yeah. We both felt like objects. Men, uh-uh. Yeah. Uh-uh. Uh, and, thank and God, thank might, God. I did not have... responsible for it, as if there was something about me that absolutely, made this happen. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I will say I never felt that for the mere reason that... Um, well, some people do, I'm just saying. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I think it was because I was so indoctrinated at such an early age. I was told that I was God's bride and he was God's man and this was God's love. Okay? Um, Shannon. Yeah, and this evil. this little First Communion dress here. Um, we have pictures that we took, or my parents took, whoever, Um that day when I made my first communion in that dress. And I've had to come to terms with this just of late in getting all the pictures ready for the book that he he literally took that. He, I truly believe he believed that, okay? Because the same day that this happened, you know, that the pictures were taken at my mom and dad's house, later on that evening, we have pictures of Debbie and me in his apartment on that table getting pictures taken. So we know what happened that night. He always, once we made our first communions, as long as we could wear those dresses before we outgrew them, that was like, I don't know, sexy clothes for him. But and it's meant to be a wedding dress, a veil, you. a sacred thank object you. to communicate a deeper reality. But that just shows the level of his illness, right? the level of his illness. Right. Um, yeah. So, you you know, uh, again, when people, one of the things that I get most angry with is when people say your triggers are your own. You know, you take care of your triggers. Well, I'm sorry, sorry. if I smell beer or if I hear strangers in the night or, you know, a myriad of different triggers that I have. And I may be doing well, might have been doing well for a week, a day, a month. And all of a sudden it's slapping you in the face. You're back there. You're back there. And you have to dig yourself up again. So I think the thing is, You have to realize you can always dig yourself back out. Now, sometimes it takes longer than others, but you can. Um, I can remember in Father Kevin's apartment when I would be rocking under the desk and I knew what was going on with Sissy. Um, For years, all I could remember was the rocking, that I would just rock. And as my husband would tell you, Anytime I'm upset, anytime I'm uh, triggered, whatever, I start either rocking or swaying. I've learned that that's called self-comforting. Yes. Okay. Didn't know it. Didn't know I was doing it. Uh, But if you you see something like that going on, that's usually what is going on in my head. Of course, because of the whole, you know, I am Father Kevin and blah, 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 blah. Father, the name Father. 
Father God? Not possible. Not possible. Um, Anything male was scary. And so here I am. I'm supposed to believe in this male Father God and his kid, Jesus, the boy. Um, Probably four or five years ago, I started seeing on the internet all the time these pictures of my first day in heaven with Jesus. And you see Jesus hugging a woman or you see Jesus with little kids or or whatever. And I finally came to realize when I was rocking under that desk, I was sitting in Jesus's lap and he was rocking me. He was there with me then. And that's and a real safe space. Yes, and he's here with me now between two fellas. And he will be with me the day I take my last breath. I, I think, Shannon, that that's, that's where, what I was saying a moment ago, where this goes. Because there's two things that I really want to emphasize to anyone listening. As you said, it's not anybody's fault that this happened, this happened to you. But the result of being left feeling dehumanized or of no worth, I think that, you know, the devil is the father of lies. Absolutely. And I think the two greatest lies, perhaps the only two that he's ever told, was first to get us to believe something false about God. And the other one is to get us to deny the value of what we are made in the image of God. And that, that self, that viewing of oneself as of no account, of worthless, of not human, that is a lie which, to be completely blunt, comes from the very pit of hell. Yes. And everyone who has ever been abused in any way needs to hear a thousand times, you matter, you count, you are made in the image of God, you are more than this, you are beautiful, you are good. This, you need to hear this. Everyone's child. And that's Mm -hmm. the other thing is Mm -hmm. where Father Kevin objectified and denied the humanity Christ does exactly the opposite. God becomes man and gives himself to us. He does not take, he gives. And I cannot help but think how Father Kevin twisted the sacraments, right? In your mind, in the mind of your sister. And yet the reality is that Christ on the altar, when he says, this is my body given for you, is an act of pure gift. It is of no taking. It does not deny our humanity but it offers to our humanity his divinity, which raises us up. Absolutely. And it is the antidote, it is the medicine to every every wound, every yes. lie, yeah. every brokenness. Well, for me too, uh, the thing that's always brought me back, even when I wanted to run screaming from this very human, imperfect church that we have, mm-hmm. um, is the Eucharist. I can't live without it. That's the bottom line. And there's no other denomination that truly believes that this is the body and blood of our Lord and And Savior. And what does he say? This is my body given for you. you. This isn't my body to take and use at will and 
empty someone else out for the sake yeah. of myself. It's I empty myself out for the sake of you. And it's it's the exact opposite of pornography or objectification, abuse of any kind. And this to me, Shannon, is why I am utterly amazed that God would bring us together for this time. Because, you know, I grew up at that parish. I grew up knowing that story and absorbing that story. But there was also a point where I had to find my own faith and healing right. and, and theology of the body, and, and I brought this intentionally, became the greatest source of comfort for me. And I didn't even read the thick book until about 2017, 18. Mm -hmm. And it was through reading it that I realized this truly, every, every talk I've heard, every other book I've read, this really is the antidote that answers this twisted up lie that Satan is and Satan continues to maintain in the minds and perceptions of so many Yes, that if we learn this language, it, it's not a teaching so much as it's a lens, a worldview. Uh, it helps us untwist the lies in the mm -hmm. language so that we can actually um, find healing. And so I've started reading that book out loud, basically turning it into an audio book right. in the confessional at St. Luke. Mm -hmm. And I did this knowing my whole life that the fire started in the confessional. I did that. And I started this a month before my wedding in 2019, just reading it once uh, every time on the 40th anniversary of John Paul II, having delivered that particular right. audience. And now it's in that year of redemption where he took a year off. So I haven't been reading much lately. But we're hearing this story, and the fire started in the confessional, mm -hmm. the very place where that took place. Mm -hmm. That's also the same space that my mom and my mom's sister were married on the grounds of the old church um, that brought a lot of healing to my family. Mm -hmm. um, and it was in the same physical space where these things took place with you and your sister. And so I just, I just thank you for your courage, for your resiliency, for your mercy. It, as I've said, it's, it's unlocked a, a key uh, in my own life. And I believe it, it, it's been the key to unlock so much healing and awareness and um, hope for so many in the Archdiocese of Louisville. Well, I want to say this too, uh, to the people of St. Luke's. I know when my sister and I came out in 2002, they were devastated, but they were also, they felt like everybody was looking at them like, why did you let this happen at your church? Um, they were no more guilty than Debbie and I were. Um, and I hate that they felt that way. I hate that they ever felt that they had any part in it. They didn't. They did not in any way at all uh, do or say anything that could have happened, made this to happen. And so they should feel no more guilt than I should feel for what had happened. Um, it just is horrible that it happened there in their church and they're on their grounds, uh, but they are not guilty of anything. No one there. So uh, that needed to be said. Thank you for saying that. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's a great... Because it's it feels like a debt that has to be repaid, no, but no. it's a debt that only Christ can pay, in a beautiful way. And mm -hmm. so, do you have any final thoughts, things that you would like to share as we conclude this episode uh -huh. today? Never give up on your faith, yeah. ever. 
Don't. Even when you're going through the worst of whatever, you know, whether it's a a family situation, a divorce, uh, somebody is dying of a a horrible disease, somebody came to you with abuse, doesn't matter. Don't give up on your faith. God does not ever give up on us. So don't give up on him. You are an inspiration. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. On spirit and spire. (laughs) Thank you. Well, praise God for you, Shannon. And and thank you all so much for spending this time with us to hear Shannon's heart, to hear her story of uh, incredible healing and redemption and uh, hope for so many. And we, uh, we pray for all those who are still suffering in this cloud of darkness. And we pray for the strongholds in our archdiocese to fall. And we ask you to pray for all those victims who've suffered abuse, who are continuing to endure that journey. And, uh, and be open to the Holy Spirit to bring healing in your life. In whatever way that may be, trust the Lord. He will guide you to the promised land. With that, everyone, we are praying for you. Please pray for us. We will see you next week on another episode of Spirit Inspire. God bless.